Welcome to the Holy Smokes Podcast, a show about faith, friendship, fine tobacco and drink. I'm Steve Ryder in the Lion's Den in Monument, Colorado. Thank you so much, Derek and Susan Fulmer, for letting us hole up here and get these interviews done. I am here with my good buddy, Steve Grison. Steve? Yes, sir. Dude, as soon as Kay Carl and I first started talking about Holy Smokes, Mm. You were one of those stories that I wanted to get because you have just one of the most fascinating. I mean, we said it right before we started. You've lived three lifetimes True. in your one life. Yep. And uh, so this is one I know a number of people have said, when are you doing Steve? When are you doing Grison? When are you doing him? When is he coming on? And so I'm glad to have gotten this one done before my family and I head to Australia for pretty much most of the month of December. That's going to be a good time. Oh, it's going to be really good. I'm very excited for this trip. So first question, Steve, what you smoking? So I'm smoking kind of a boutique cigar. Yeah. A lot of guys outside of this area may not have heard of it. It's called Safari Cigars. And it's made by one of our Holy Smokes guys, Mm -hmm. a guy named Joe Basil. It's a blend in Nicaragua. It was blended by Old Man Patron before he passed away. Really? So it's a really tasty... It looks really dark, but it's actually a very medium and yeah, it tasty looks really cigar. Dark. It does. And it's actually... We're doing this in the morning, so this would be a pretty heavy cigar for morning, but it's not really. <laughs> it's really nice. It draws well. It's uh, spicy, but not too spicy, and it's a delicious cigar. Well, I'm going to have to reach out to Joe and talk to him about getting some yes. guests... I reached out just before the interview, and he said, if you go to... There's his website, safaricigars.com. Yes. yes. And then if you go to their Instagram, they post coupon codes all the time on Instagram. Yes. So then that's how people can get them. Wonderful. And they're good. Yeah. He couldn't get them out for a long time because of the Civil War in Nicaragua. Mm. So he had a million cigars sitting there. He couldn't get out. So. Oh. <laughs> all right. And then I am smoking an Illusione Garagiste. Mm. Nice big medium-bodied one that Howard at Lucioni sent us for the podcast. And this is my first Garagiste, and I like it. I like it. It's a nice, big, fat stick. Yeah, those Lucionis have a good reputation, so. Yeah. All right, so Steve, you grew up in Hong Kong, but you really come from a family with a deep, rich history of faith and having done stuff. Yeah, I was really blessed to have a family that had honored God and had given their lives to Him and had been used by Him all around the world. Both my grandfathers were legends within their era. Yeah. But they both had humble stories of obedience to God, following God. My one grandfather, he uh, came from a tobacco-growing family in North Carolina and then moved (laughs) west. And That's interesting. You come from... Yes. You, the lover of cigars. <laughs> it's in there, man. Yeah. And so uh, he was a Scot. His name was McLaughlin. When he moved west, he kind of was a young man, and he grew in ministry, and he ended up doing absolutely phenomenal stuff in his life. My other grandfather, the Grison side of us, was a sailor between Copenhagen and Denmark. He was a Danish boy. Yeah. And at 15 years old, he was sailing between Copenhagen and Denmark, and one day... Four of these boys, who were not followers of Christ, but my grandfather was a big deal about being a man of his word. Yeah. They agreed to jump ship in New York, and three of them chickened out. 
And so my grandfather alone jumped ship. And that's how we started in the U.S. He was an illegal alien. <laughs> he slept on park benches, couldn't speak English, got a job eventually with the Santa Fe Railway, painting their tall smokestacks back then. Yeah. And then later he went into the 7th Cavalry and had his own horse named Chico and rode the Mexican-American border, slept at night on the ground next to his horse. Had this really rich life, but he earned his citizenship by going off to World War I. And he ended up in the trenches of France. And have you seen those movies? There's a great one out by Peter Jackson now. And you saw what a slog and how wet and miserable that was. So a lot of these guys got, people will be familiar with the term trench foot. Yeah. But there was a trench disease. And they sent him home to die after that. And he ended up in a hospital dying. And that was the moment where God touched him for the first time. There was a little... Pentecostal lady who walked through the hospital praying for the sick. And he had no background in any of that. All he knew was he saw a vision of Jesus walk up to the foot of his bed, and he got healed. And when he got healed, what? it's amazing. When he got healed, he knew nothing. All he had was this sort of Catholic icon painting yes. of Jesus. Yeah. And he locked himself in a room for three days and kissed it and thanked God for his life. And at that point, you know, God spoke to him and said, I want to use you. Steve, you're and, getting emotional telling this uh, yeah, story this is, this because it's big stuff. So he ended up later, he only had an eighth grade education. But highlights of his ministry was he hooked up with the Assemblies of God guys back when that movement was really roaring. Yeah. Not that it's not roaring today. There's 90 million of them around the world. Yeah. But it was a real fresh move in America during that era. And he decided they made him the uh, district guy for the state of Kansas. So he was a, always a man of strong faith because of what he, what he had seen. He had a gift of faith. If there's one thing he had, that was it. And he decided, if you look at a map of all the counties in Kansas, there's hundreds of them, and he decided he would plant a church in every county in Kansas. So he would scoop these young men up, put them through Bible school, pay their way through Bible school. After they graduated... And, of course, he's trusting God for all this money to put these guys through Bible school. Then he would put them in his little Volkswagen, drive them out to a county, give them three months' salary, and say, build a church and trust God. And he built a church in every county in Kansas. It's remarkable. And later, I have this, like, a high school annual that they created for him of every church with their congregation saying, thank you, Pastor Christ, and thank you, thank you, showing all, all these things. Remarkable story. Later, he became the missions director for the Assemblies of God, planted 150 churches in India, built the largest Bible school in Europe, and just remarkable examples of faith and trust in God. So then my parents, when they met, came from sort of these two dynasty families. And so as an adult looking back now, my perspective is they had some long shadows over them, yeah. you know, and I'm sure the pressure was on. Yeah. You know, it was like, oh my gosh, this is royalty in this movement who were marrying each other. Yeah. And so it didn't surprise me as I looked back that they left the U.S. and escaped. <laughs> and they were young pastors. I was actually, when they were very young and out of Bible school and starting churches from scratch, myself and my two sisters, we were born in a little town called Kellogg, Idaho. Kellogg, Idaho at the time had the Sunshine Mine, which was the largest silver mine in the world. And during that time, Dad had planted this church from scratch and built it. And all of us were born, as my dad said, you were born in a wooden hospital, and they wouldn't charge the minister back in those days a dollar for the births. It was all free. 
because they had respect for you know ministers right yeah. and so later my folks got the call to go to hong kong and so when i was six years old there's three of us kids at that point i'm the middle one at that juncture mm-hmm. and we end up getting on a freighter in san pedro harbor which is down by long beach california and sailing 34 days at sea to get to hong kong 34 days so back how old then, were you at the time i was six okay so back then... Do you have any memories of... Oh, yeah, that? absolutely. And pictures. So my dad was always a photographer, so I have a well-documented life, you know. Yeah. But it was an interesting time. My mom was pregnant and not told any of the family, including her parents, because that would have slowed down their ability to go at that time, and they really were committed to going. And so as we pulled away from the dock, she yelled back at her family, I'm pregnant, you know. <laughs> so here's my dear mom, you know, at sea in open ocean. And we got 34 days at sea. We hit it some really rough weather. Yeah. And poor thing's pregnant, you know. Yeah. But it was exciting for us kids. You know, they took one of those cargo holds on a ship. They put a liner in it and filled it up with yeah. salt water. Yeah. And that was our swimming pool on the ship. <laughs> And there was only 12 cabins, so it wasn't a passenger liner, it was just a freighter. Yeah. So we pull into Hong Kong Harbor and are looking sort of at our new world for the first time. And the ship can't pull up to a dock, it has to anchor about a quarter of a mile out in the harbor. And then we have to get on these little boats they call the Walla Wallas, these little tiny rocky boats that were motorized and bring us in. Yeah. So our new life for the first time. Again, you know, we're kids, we're wide-eyed, this is fun. My parents were not greeted with such joy. My, my dad had, was originally headed to Calcutta, India, because his boyhood friends, since they were 12 years old, a guy named Mark Buntain, had gone there about 10 years before us. But then uh, they got a call from the assembly of God headquarters saying, we've got a real big need in Hong Kong, would you pray about diverting? So what the need was, the senior missionary who had been there, apparently had been there very long, had insulted an older, well-respected Chinese woman leader. And of course, Asian culture is a honor-shame culture. And one of the things you don't do is that. Yeah. And if you need to make a move, you do what you call sideways promotion, right? You never demote anybody. Yeah. Uh, you eliminate a job and you move them sideways to keep face. Well, they had lost face. And so my dad's greeting was, we don't need you here. Get back on the boat and go home. So, you know, this wow. is, I only discovered this a few years ago when I'm talking to him as an adult to an adult. What was yeah. the hard times? And then he knew he had a lot of repairing to do, which he did over time and brilliantly. And they were there for 30 years. I grew up going to British schools because there was no American kind of education. Yeah. So I went to Callan Junior School, which is British, and then later King George V School. We wore uniforms, we had knee-high socks, we wore ties and blazers. We got canings when we were bad. We had prefix, which were... How many canings did you get? What kind of kid were you? Were were you a troublemaker like you are now? I was trouble. I was trouble. So I actually have my report cards, and they didn't care about, like today, you know, you care about self-esteem and not hurting people's feelings and building them up emotionally. None of that existed. So there would be statements on the report cards like, this boy is a disturbing presence. <laughs> and well, one of the things we learned about Canings was our principal's name was aptly Mr. Gore. And Mr. Gore was an alcoholic, clearly. Mm. And so there was a teacher's lounge where they basically smoked and drank. 
And but if we ever got caned, we pray he'd be too drunk to hit us hard. And so, you know, you would have to go in to his office and you would have to open this little case that had all the canes in it and pick one. The thing that we learned was you always pick the fat ones because the thin ones would sting so bad. So you drop your pants and hit you'd be nailed wailing on the back of your legs. And that's what they did. And then they had a system there called prefix, which in the British system meant they were upperclassmen that were picked that had authority over lower classmen. And if they saw you do something wrong, they could say, give me 10 push-ups, all the way to a Saturday detention where you had to come to school on Saturday. They could dish out all this. Mm-hmm. And also, on top of that, I was an American. And the Brits, it was a pretty racist school against Americans, interestingly enough. So there was definitely a division. And I was scrappy. I was a pretty small guy, but I was scrappy. And it's like, if you assaulted an American, like, it was odd. You know? I had my share of fights. But it was a crazy time. And eventually, there was a school that opened up, started by the Lutherans in, in Hong Kong for Americans. And the whole idea was to create an American prep school so American kids could go on. So there's a lot of expats in Hong Kong that were either embassy people, business people, missionaries. You know, there was a pretty big expat community there then. Of course, it was run by the British. It was a British colony. Yeah. So a very safe place, even though it was a huge monster city. My trip to school, when I first... I left King George V School and finally moved over to what was called Hong Kong International School, which was the American Prep School. And my trip from my home, which I lived out in a town, a little fishing village called Satin, and I would travel 20 minutes across, first of all, across a rickety wooden bridge over a river that like two people could barely pass with only a railing on one side. And sometimes a bicycle would pass you and you'd be up against the railing. And then I'd cross this dike that held back the sea because we were up against the ocean, yeah. walk into this little fishing village where they had just caught and showing off all their catch of the day. And then I'd get on a rickety old train, which I would take 30 minutes down downtown Hong Kong. Then I'd get on a ferry that would cross the Hong Kong Harbor, and then I'd get on a double-decker bus and go all the way around to the other side of the island. So it was an hour and a half each way for oh my me gosh. as a young teenage kid to go to school and back. Wow. And if I missed my train on the way home, because it was a tight schedule, then I got home at 9 o'clock at night. Started it all again, so crazy time. That time was a time, of course, I had the influence of faith from my family, but I wasn't really submitted to God. You know, I'd been raised in the faith. It's a term I say, you know, people can be inoculated. And the mm-hmm. whole concept of inoculation is to give you a little bit of that thing so you don't get the real thing, right? So a lot of times Christian kids can be inoculated. Totally. Right? They can hear just enough that they totally. never really catch the real thing. Yeah. And for me, catching the real thing happened when a couple came to town and started a little home Bible study. It was this would have been around sixty nine. Jesus movement was underway. This was common in the U.S. And this couple was, you know, he was in business there, and she had been remarried. Their name was uh, Jean and Rick Willens, but her name before that was called Jean Stone. Jean came out of, if you remember, about the time of the Jesus movement was this thing called the Charismatic Renewal that happened yep. in America, right, where the work of the Holy Spirit trans into a lot of the mainline denominations. And one of the early voices in that was a guy named Dennis Bennett out of Van Nuys, California, who wrote a book called Good Morning, Holy Spirit that became really a bestseller. Yeah. And so she came out of Dennis Bennett's church, and she was actually the one that named the charismatic movement. It was her name. 
So now she ends up in Hong Kong. She's a spirit-filled lady. So they cook it up, and they're feeding all these kids. And you would sing, and you share the scripture, and then you'd give place for the Holy Spirit's work, and people would get filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, gifts of the Spirit would be present. We would have drug addicts there that would be delivered from drugs. You had people demonized that were getting delivered just in this little apartment, you know? And a lot of great things happened there. And one of the ladies that was probably 26 years old became a legend, and you can look her up. She wrote a book called Chasing the Dragon, and her name was Jackie Pullinger. She was a British girl at the time who left England, and under the leading of the Lord, God said, get on a boat, and I'll tell you when to get off. (laughs) She arrives in Hong Kong. God says, get off. And so she was part of our Bible study. And what made her remarkable, though, was Hong Kong had a place called the Walled City. A lot of people will have heard about this. In the middle of Hong Kong, near the old airport, was this, it wasn't really a wall, it was a series of buildings that were formed in this giant square. And it was an area that was just filled with crime. China claimed ownership of it, so the the Hong Kong police would not go in there. And it was filled with, you know, women being sold, prostitution, drugs, the triads were there, porno theaters, it was a dark and evil place that had no safety to it whatsoever. And so here this little blonde English lady in her mid-twenties, Jackie, begins to go in there filled with the Holy Spirit and starts leading these guys to Christ (laughs) and praying these guys off drugs. And it's a stunning story. Today she's viewed as sort of a Mother Teresa figure. And if you go on YouTube, you'll see some of her stuff or go read her book, Chasing the Dragon. But, you know, that is really where then my heart began to get plowed open. You know, I knew a lot about God and the gospel and the Bible. But really, you know, there's a whole change when your heart begins to open. Growing up in Hong Kong, did you have any relationship to your grandparents? So my grandfather at one point, of course, was the foreign missions director. So he would come to Hong Kong every now and then. But we saw them rarely because the concept back then was you would... First of all, there was two things. One was missions was a lifetime calling. So the idea of short-term missions didn't exist. That was created by YWAM, actually. Mm-hmm. But in those days, it was God called you to a place you would go there, serve until you died. Yeah. And in many places in the world, like Africa and other places, there would be diseases that may kill you and may kill your children. So you took your children and you sent them to boarding school for safety. We didn't have to do that because it was a much more modern city with a good educational system. But, you know, my parents kind of went with this idea of this will be here, you know, forever. And so my grandfather... 30 years, obviously, yeah. they were there for quite a long time. And they would have actually still been there, but my dad had a thing called China Radio that he built. And what he did was, during Mao's years, the only way to get the gospel into the completely closed nation of China, completely closed. Hong Kong was filled with people that had relatives in China they couldn't speak to. I mean, it was shut tight until Nixon opened it up. But up till that point, the only way to get in was broadcast, and they built basically a transmitter bigger than Voice of America to broadcast into medium wave and short wave, set up a studio, did 42 programs a week in multiple language, Chinese languages. And it was kid shows, and it was English shows, and it was preaching shows. It was just any way to get the gospel across. Yeah. And uh, often, you know, my mom would teach English, and in the Chinese culture, your teacher was well-honored, as high as your parents. You would go to your teacher with your marriage problems and with the important things of your life. Mm -hmm. It's a trusted relationship. So people would write letters, and they would get 10,000 letters a month out of China. And they had to form an army of people that would take these letters 
answer each one of them. And then they have put them with couriers. After Nixon opened up China, you could go in. It was difficult and it was weird, but these people would take letters in as couriers and then mail them from post offices inside China to get them back to you know the people that are written. So it was a remarkable time. It was a time where my parents studied. We would go five years at a time and then go one year home and then five years. So back to my grandparents, I adored them both and we didn't see them very often at all. Mm -hmm. My grandfather McLaughlin was an outdoorsman and a hunter, hunted on horseback. And you know, as a boy growing up in a big city, I dreamed about that. That would be so fun. I never got to do that with him. But to me, it was just seeing what my parents did absolutely remarkable. It took him the first term, almost five years of private tutors, to learn the dialect of Chinese, which was Cantonese, where we lived, which mm -hmm. is more difficult than Mandarin. It has seven tones. You know, Mandarin has five. And so most of the Chinese go, oh, we can't speak that. That's too hard, you know. But they had to learn so they could preach and teach in it and all that kind of stuff. And my, later, my dad became a principal of a Bible school. And one year, again, this was during Mao's reign, the entire graduating class, of, I think there was about 30 or 33, felt the call of God to go back to China, which we knew would be a one-way trip. And they all disappeared back into China. And for most of them, we never heard from them again. And this was during the Cultural Revolution of 67. Wow. The number of people that were being killed. Remember, Mao killed over 30 million of his own people when he you know, put people on collectives to grow food to pay back Russia for funding the Communist Revolution in China. And so they disappeared. And then there was a time where the pressure got so bad during the Cultural Revolution, people would find their way down to the beaches of China and try to swim the South China Sea to get to Hong Kong. And, and that's so, how many miles? It's a long way, depending upon where you put in. Well, China had towers and machine guns and dogs and guards to stop this. So, but we had a call one day because one of the guys that was one of those men that from that graduating class ended up successfully doing this. He had made his way from the interior of China, made his way to the beach, took the inside of basketballs out, inflated them and strapped them under their arms and would float down the South China Sea to get to Hong Kong. Many of these people, we were having bodies wash up on shore regularly. People were being hit by boats. I mean, it was a very dangerous trip. Well, he ended up in the new territories where we lived, but further out. Yeah. And he crawled into this farmer's pig pen and begged the farmer for a phone, and he called my dad. In those days, they had roadblocks because there's so many of these people were doing this, and they would be captured, and they'd be sent back to China. Oh, no. Which is very difficult. Yeah. So my dad and I, we get in our car, and we load him in the trunk. And we drive back through these roadblocks. And of course, because we're white people, it's just like, go on, you know. Yeah. So like we went on. And he told us some extraordinarily heartbreaking stories. But at the same time, after Nixon opened up China and you could go in, mm -hmm. my parents began to reconnect with these people that most of the missionaries had been thrown out of China in 1954. And so began to reconnect with these old connections and the faithfulness to God and, you know, their whole question was, you know, how's so-and-so and how's so-and-so? How's brother so-and-so? Is he okay? Their, their concern was all for other people, not for themselves. And they'd been through ridiculous things. I mean, things that you couldn't even imagine. So, you know, later I would go back and do a film on that, which I still haven't released. But, you know, we'll talk about that at another time. But that was my upbringing. And so I always felt, you know, as they say, I was always under the voice of God. From the time I was a young man, I knew God's voice. I knew God was speaking to me. But I had not really given 
my life to Christ until that moment in that small Bible study, really, where my heart opened and I How grew hungry. So at that point, I was a junior in high school. Okay. So it gives you some 16, sense. 16, yeah. 17, yeah. Yeah, 15 probably, a little yeah. ahead. But, and then the next year, we ended up coming back to the U.S. on furlough. And so what would happen is my dad would travel all year. We wouldn't see him reporting to all the churches that supported us, raising additional support. And then they put us in school. So I was in Bellevue, Washington, so before Microsoft. And I went to school there, went into the Interlake High School, and they said, well, let's see what this boy's learned. And it's like, well, he hasn't really had any American history. You know, it's like, yeah, but he had British history. Oh, okay, that's fine. Well, he hasn't had this. And well, he's had physics and chemistry. Oh, okay, that's fine. So they go, yeah, you know, he could graduate right now if he wanted to. He doesn't really have to come to school. Well, I didn't have anything to do. I was a musical kid. So I just went to school. I took four music classes. I started a Bible study and had hundreds of kids come into the Bible study. And in our annual that year, they divided the students up into freaks, which were the hippies, yeah. the jocks, and the Jesus freaks, because it was such a move of God on the campus. Really? And What year is this? This would have been 1972. And okay. I graduated in 1972. My parents would go back to Hong Kong soon. But before that summer actually happened, which if you remember, was the Munich Olympics were in 1972. I went to a church, a little neighborhood church, and I heard... Brother Andrew, who many will know him from his book, God Smuggler. Mm -hmm. Lauren Cunningham was the president of Youth of the Mission. And Don Stevens, who would later start Mercy Ships, which many people know, recruiting for this idea of going and raising up hundreds of kids to go to the Olympics to share their faith. That at that time, the Cold War was on. Those nations were closed and you couldn't go in. But a lot of these people would be coming out to the Olympics. Mm -hmm. And it would be a chance where we could share our faith share Jesus with these people, and see God work. So I was one of those, and my sister joined me, and other friends joined as well. And we ended up in Munich during that time. Concept was, they bought a castle in a little town called Augsburg. And they had over a thousand kids from all over the world who loved Jesus, Europe, all kinds. And it was an interesting Olympics, because think about it. Israel would not participate in the Olympics in 1930, because it was in Hitler's Germany. So yep. they refused to participate. Well, here now, you know, fast forward, it's 1972, and Israeli athletes come to Germany again, yeah. right? And so it's a time really of sharing our faith. And the, what they did was they divided, basically they took 500 of the kids who would stay back and be taught all day. And the teachers would be people like Corey Tembum and Brother Andrew and Joy Dawson and Lauren Cunningham and lots of other... Those are some big names. Big those names those, those yeah, are now. some really big names. <laughs> yes. Looking then, back. Looking back, absolutely. And then the other half would go into town and share their faith. And they broke us up into these little small groups. So it was sort of smaller groups, larger groups, and so on. So one time, we didn't know what was about to happen. Nobody knew what was no. about to happen. The whole world is watching. And one morning, it's our turn to go in and share our faith. And my small group of eight where we would to stick together. You know, I went to my leader and I said, you know, I'm not going to be with a group. I feel I'm supposed to go to the Olympic Village today. So I left alone and I showed up at the Olympic Village only to see crowds gathering, no police there yet, and masked men on balconies. And I didn't know what was happening. Nobody knew what was happening. But what was happening was Black September had broken in, 
killed a couple of Israeli athletes and were holding the rest hostage. And as that thing played out, the whole world was witnessing probably the first expression of sort of Islamic terror internationally that had ever happened. And it was bungled by the Germans. There's some great documentaries on this to follow. Great one called 21 Days in September. But it was bungled, and they demanded a helicopter. Munich has two airports, and I would fly out of this airport days later. But the shootout happens where the helicopter is there. They're waiting to get on a plane, and there's a bungled shootout at night with sharpshooters that kind of blow it, and the terrorists pull the pin, throw it in this helicopter, and burn all these bound athletes to death and kill a huge number, crushing, really, the world as they watched this. And the rest of them got on a plane, the Black September guys, and left. Well, days later, I would walk 10 feet from that helicopter and just see the scene of carnage. And, you know, I'm a young man at that point. It left an impression. During that time when that happened, the whole focus of all these kids that had come to share their faith shifted into comfort. We made a deal with a florist, passed out over 100,000 flowers, prayed with people, and but the whole world changed. And so that was my introduction to YWAM. And so I thought, I like these guys. You know, I like what I see. And I went back to Bellevue, and I got a job working for the Nordstrom family. And the Nordstroms didn't have a bunch of stores. They had one downtown Seattle, then they opened one in Bellevue. And I worked in the most profitable department in Nordstrom Lady Shoes. And uh, it was a very consumer-oriented business. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to, my parents had gone back to Hong Kong. And, you know, they basically said, look, we can't really help with college. But, you know, we know God's got you and you'll be fine. And he did. And I was fine. So I rented a room with a family. I went to work, bought a little car. And I was trying to save money because back then... I wanted to go to one of their schools. They called them the School of Evangelism, which was a one-year program. And they had one in Switzerland. I wanted to go there. And it was a chance for my hungry heart to grow some more. So I had to get enough money together to do this. And I'm on my own, working for the Nordstroms. And I end up deciding I'm not going to get enough in time. I'm going to sell my car. I got enough to buy a one-way ticket there, and I got enough for half the school tuition. But I, I made a deal with God. You know, I said, you know, God, you know I have a need. You see everything. You see what's going on. I'm not going to become an evangelist for my need. In fact, I'm not going to mention this to anybody. And I'm just trusting you to take care of me. So I called the school, and I said, I got half the tuition. I got a one-way flight. Will you take me? And they said, yeah, come on. And during that time, it was... God met all those needs. That one year school, I'd wake up, there'd be money under my pillow. What? I'd find money in my Bible. Because God was speaking to other people. Yeah. And so again, you know, I'm learning and I'm learning and I'm learning. I'm learning to hear how to hear and obey God's voice, how to be a faithful man, and how to trust him. And, you know, I just had this heart. I knew God had some sort of call on my life, but I didn't know what it was. Yeah. My dad was Assembly of God. I think in a certain sense, he was disappointed that we didn't end up, when we left home, essentially Jesus movement was underway. God was working amongst young people Mm -hmm. in a stunning way in culture. And that was 
our culture and that was our music and that was our time and so that was our connection to ministry and my dad in a certain way I think you know because he loved his tribe so much you know that we didn't become a part of the assemblies of God to do that I remember one day he wrote me a letter said Steve you want to be in ministry I can get you a church as a youth pastor somewhere and I said you know dad I I think I'm supposed to do something in ministry but I don't know what it is so during that time in school, it was great. You know, we'd have dinners and times of social times. And I was a musical guy. Where, so where did that love for music come from? Where did that, were your parents, were your grandparents musicians at all? Yes, all of the above. My okay. parents are both violinists. They have a record out. You know, they've done stuff as well. My grandfather was known on the McLaughlin side as a banjo player. and People loved that. You know, so I think it was in there. You know, later I would see the media aspect of it would also resurface. My yeah. dad was in, ra- in yeah, radio, radio. And, in media, who, you know. So during that time, I started a band within the school, only really to sing at sort of the dinners. And, you know, it was just we were in school for a year. Right. So that's yeah. what we did. Well, one time I was sitting there, we perform and there's a colonel from Germany who's over visiting the uh, YWAM school there. And he pulls me aside and he says, son, he goes, when you finish your schooling here, the U.S. military wants to hire your band. And he says, oh, by the way, can you come over this weekend? We got a thing we want you guys to play at. I'm like, well, you know, let me get permission from the leaders, you know. They said, yeah, you know, it's a short drive to Germany from Switzerland, yeah. right? So yeah. went over, did a weekend event there, and came back. And when we were finished, we felt like God wanted us to stay together as a group with our schooling. So we stayed together four years, and we stayed mainly in Europe. And we went to work for the military. Back then, we had 400,000 guys based in Germany holding back the red threat, you know. Mm -hmm. And these guys were away from home, and most of them were lonely. Many of them were, as they say, not living on the economy. They were living in barracks. They couldn't even afford to bring their wives over. And many of them had not even been out of their home state. They were a long way from home. And so... For me, I didn't know anything about military anything. I was raised in Hong Kong. I didn't know the Pledge of Allegiance at this point. I didn't know like American football. I didn't know anything. Really? Wow. So now I'm in the middle of these army ranks and officers, and I don't know who's who in the zoo, other than I'm really happy to be you know, playing be music with these guys. I love people. Yeah. So it's just great to meet these guys and hang out. All stripes, all sorts, and you know, and you know those were. St- Amazing years. You know, one of the things that happened that became really a landmark thing in my life was when I was in Switzerland before we launched out and started doing music. I had this watershed moment. And, you know, the moment kind of goes like this. Dead men don't have rights. When you're dead to your sin and alive to Christ, then all of a sudden you're a brand new creation. Mm -hmm. And I knew that God was calling me to give up every dream, every ambition, every plan that I had and give that to him and then let him replace those with his work. And so I just said to God, here I am. I don't know what my life's supposed to look like, but you do. Mm -hmm. And so just show me, guide me. I don't consider myself the most spiritual guy around. Honestly, I've always argued that God's ability to speak was greater than my inability to hear. Yeah. But I just was trying to follow and trying to listen and trying to be obedient as a young guy. And then stuff would start to unfold. And looking back now, you just kind of go, oh, my gosh. Yeah. But back then, you're in the middle of it. 
One of the things that happened that was interesting was when we were still in school, and I'll get to the military piece in just a quick minute, YWAM would say, listen, on Sundays we want you to connect with a local church. Well, it's Lausanne, Switzerland. There's not any churches that you would want to go. There's no evangelical churches or, you know. But there's all these old traditional churches. So I found this church called a Scotskirk church, which nobody's ever heard of. Yeah. Scotskirk is sort of the Scottish version of Anglican. And so, you know, the whole band, we would go to the Scotskirk church. It was dry and whatever. But we got to know people and enjoyed it. And the vicar there liked us, and we played there a couple of times. And he said, listen, would you come with me up to this High Mountain Girls School that I go to every month? And would you guys come up and do a concert for these girls? And we said, yes. So we end up going to this school, which I later found out the name. It's called Le Rosie. Le Rosie. Le Rosie. It's the most expensive school in the world. It's $133,000 a year. What? For a student. So now... $133,000 a year now? Or hundred thirty. Uh, that was in. It's probably gone up actually since then. So this is <laughs> oh this is in the late eighties. Oh my gosh! So we go to the school and it's fourteen, fifteen, sixteen-year-old girls of obviously wealthy people, and they're yeah. being, and you know many of them are daughters of kings and presidents, and and you know we're not much older. We're eighteen, nineteen. You know we're sort of the fresh meat of the week, as we sing. You know, and it's <laughs> it's sweet, and all these girls. We share faith and share music. And then they say, listen, we want you to have lunch when we're going to put each one of you guys at a table with your own girls. And it was like fine dining. It was like white tablecloths. And yeah. These have, people, have you ever been in any kind of a situation like that prior with that kind of fancy? Well, you food? know, Hong Kong in a different way. I'd been to weddings that had a hundred course feast because they were very wealthy. Wow. But different, not like European like this. You yeah. Know? So I had a table, and you know I'm sitting there with these girls, and of course, again, we you know we had a hard share of faith, and we're talking about life or whatever. To my right is the daughter of the Shah of Iran, and to my left is Elizabeth Taylor's daughter. So to give you an idea of the caliber of people, and the school was filled with these kinds of people. Yeah. So you know, here we have this opportunity to wander through life and end up sharing our faith because we're following Jesus, right? Yeah. So now we end up fast forward. We're working with the military, and it's great. We have. We're also going into Eastern Europe. Now, it's a Cold War. Eastern Europe is locked down, hard to get into. But we are going into Eastern Europe and connecting with the underground church there. And we're going in as a band. You know, we just had a couple acoustic guitars. And during that time, we sort of have two roles. We're working with the U.S. military over here, and we're going into Eastern Europe over here. We're smuggling when we go into Eastern Europe, and nobody knows because you don't talk about those things. And there was a special team in YWAM. I would assume smuggling Bibles and literature. Yeah, so what these guys did, this team, which not even the guys in YWAM knew about these guys. You couldn't speak of them. They were called Wheels of Fields. And what these guys do, they were a bunch of nerd engineers, and they were creating these false bottoms and these vehicles and pockets and these things that we could put printing plates so they could print Christian literature, manuscripts, Bibles... And that's what we were smuggling in. So we we were just taking Bibles in. We were smuggling the ability so the underground presses Mm -hmm. could crank out thousands of these things. And, of course, our cover was we were a band, and we were a band. Yeah. We we were performing. But we'd pull up to Borders, and, you know, we're talking back in those days. It's Uzis and serious-minded people, and, you know, you just throw up a prayer and say, God, here we are. You know, now we've been influenced by guys like Brother Andrew, right? So this is, like, not original with us. But... You know, the car in front of you would be, the back seats would be pulled out, the wheels would be pulled off as they're searching for contraband. 
and we're pulling in and going, God, you know, you got us. And we did that dozens of times through dozens of borders. And uh, God kept us well. I remember one time in particular, we had a couple. He's now a pastor in Riverside, California at a Calvary Chapel called the Packing House. His name is Ed Ray, but Ed and Ray Lynn, beautiful young couple, and they had a little daughter, little tiny girl. She was just a little doll. And so the rest of us were single guys, four or four other single guys. So we had put her to sleep on top of the luggage in the back of the van, and we had pulled up to this border at night. And whether I'm driving or, you know, Max was driving or one of the others, when you meet somebody like that, you have to be cool as ice, number one. And then number two, you're looking for a way to bond with them in some way. Mm -hmm. If you can find a little nugget, connect with a joke or something odd happens that you can both, something little, you know. But we pulled up to this border and this lady wasn't having it. She was all business with her Uzi in her hand and opened the back. So on top of this luggage in this little sleeping bag is this baby Jennifer. And she reaches in there and is startled because she touches her hair and doesn't know she's back there. And so it kind of hits her hard. And then she has that little nervous laugh like she's embarrassed. And then, of course, we're jumping right in and laughing with her and everything. And she just closes the back and said, oh, just go on. You know, so those are the things you'd see happen. God would just sort of somehow figure it out, you know. So we kept working with the military during those days. Do you still have a relationship with those guys in the band? I am, and, yeah. and talk about those years yeah, and talk well, about those? I, 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 I could imagine that that was a real bonding time for that entire band and everyone that was involved back then because, I mean, there's something about, you know, that kind of stress and heightened awareness and how aware you were, how close you were to danger that would really kind of bring you together. I agree with that. I think I identify with military guys, you know, that are in situations together where they'll be brothers for the rest of their life in a way that they're not even with their families because of what they've been through together. It's been so unique. And, you know, again, it was all a time where we could process all this year of learning we had had as well. Yeah. So there's lots of talks going on, you know, counterpoint, counterpoint, looking at theological things, looking at different things. All the while we're doing our ministry and God is continuing to challenge our faith and open our heart and teach us to listen to him, be open to the work of the Holy Spirit because we needed it. Do you, have a, do you have a story from that time that just really kind of sticks out from from military when, time? Or? Military or also when you were smuggling those plates uh, in. Yeah, you know, one of the things that happens is when you go and visit with Christians that have, you know, kind of had the crap beat out of them and are under tremendous pressure and many of them have been in prison, you almost feel like you're not even a Christian, right? And they're like, please pray for us. And I'm thinking, you got to pray for me. You know? <laughs> like, I don't... I'm not even a little piece of what you guys are in terms of how you had to live out your faith. So it's humbling. But, you know, here's something really kind of interesting that happened on the military side. So, again, we're playing at this venue. The concert hasn't started yet. All these guys are sitting out waiting for it to start. And this helicopter lands next to the venue and in walks this guy. And everybody sits up straight, so I'm thinking... This guy's got to be important. So we share our concert and our faith, and he's one of the people that gives his life to Christ that night. And he is General Hauser, who's in charge of all NATO forces in Europe. He's the guy, four-star. And so he invited us out to his house. And 
you know, we don't really don't take any credit for this. His wife was this godly woman who had been fasting and praying for him. Oh. We were the guys that got to throw the net out. Yeah. You know, and, he, and she was this fantastic Christian lady. So we go out to his house, and then he says, listen, would you tomorrow play for my staff? Well, I'm a kid from Hong Kong. I don't know what that means. But it's like, these are all the guys, you know, three-star Army, Navy, I mean, all the branches, Air Force, yeah. cur- cur- colonels waiting tables, you know. <laughs> and so we play in a small room with yeah. all the big guys. Yeah. These are all the guys. Yeah. We're in a little dinner room playing. Yeah. And then keep in mind, we're going in and out of Eastern Europe, which they can't do. So they're very curious about, you know, what's it like on the other side? And they have a hundred questions. Yeah. Just humbling, you know, when you look back that you were able to walk into, you know, sort of, God says he'll bring you before kings, you know, Yeah. when you follow him. And sometimes that happens. And I met a few kings, actually. So. <laughs> you and know. You, you were like late teens, early 20s at the time? Yeah, no, no. I was still in my teens. Okay. Yeah. So at some point, all the band is from Southern California, except for me. I don't know where I'm from, right? Hong Kong, Bellevue. Yeah, I don't really, yeah, I don't, I was in Bellevue for that year, but I don't, you know, I have no U.S. home to speak of. I've always, and I still do to this day, when I look at my hometown, it's Hong Kong. I know I'm an American Danish dude, but I'm sort of Chinese on the inside, you know, so people in their minds have their home, and in my mind, that's Hong Kong. So we relocate back to the U.S., and we continue to sing and travel the U.S. and begin to recruit kids into missions. For YWAM, or just? uh, Yeah. Okay. Because, you know, we basically tell our story, and that's what does it, right? And yeah. we share what God's doing and are calling young people to, you know, put feet to their faith and go do something, you know? And how were you being supported at the time? Was it through YWAM? Uh, we, or? No, we were only supported by sometimes it'd be offerings. Sometimes somebody would donate to us. We were living very lean and just trusting God and traveling the U.S., you know, and doing this. And it was a great time. And then when we were home, we'd back in L.A. And this would lead to basically how I met my wife. Because she came to one of our concerts, which I didn't know. Yeah. And then later, we would meet. And she was musical like I was. So our common denominator was we were young people sharing our faith through music. In a time where the Jesus movement was underway, God was working in the culture in an incredible way. And the Jesus movement... Well, people, you know, read about it or have heard about it. It's really hard to describe today. I have people fly in now, want to sit and visit because we were there. Tell me what it was like. You know, help me understand. We've watched like YouTube clips and we've tried to learn what it was like. And in a way, it was this work of the spirit in the culture in a wave that where God was transforming thousands and thousands of kids. And out of this came music, because the music for the first time, before that was just hymns and Southern gospel and all yeah. that stuff. Well, music represents your culture, and these kids were products of the Beatles and mm-hmm. Led Zeppelin and all these different bands. So here was now artists that came along that were singing music that was reflective of their culture. And so God seemed to save about a dozen of these guys, all within about a year of each other. And they became the core guys that became sort of the pie pipers to a whole generation. And when I met my wife, she was in one of those bands that became really well-loved. She was in a band called The Second Chapter of Acts. And they had done a song, came out with their first album, they'd done a song called The Easter Song. And that song became sort of the Handel's Messiah of the Jesus Movement, where we would go 
later we would dated for three years and we later we married but we would travel and um, kids would show up by the thousands and they all knew every word and it was just remarkable to see you know back then you know these kids were coming to Christ they had long hair they had no shoes they Southern California were a lot of hippies and the church didn't want anything to do with them the church wouldn't let them in and so most of the churches kept them out there were only a couple of people that sort of saw that the Holy Spirit was working because they didn't look like Christians and their music didn't sound like Christian music, right? And so the churches couldn't figure it out. Few guys did, you know. Jack Hayford was one of them in the San Fernando Valley. Part of that reason was Jack was a songwriter. He'd written 5,000 songs, 4,999 bad ones. And then he wrote Majesty, which everybody knows, yep. right? And another guy, he was a Foursquare guy. Jack was the guy that kind of brought new life to the Foursquare movement. And then the other guy was another Foursquare guy, Chuck Smith, yep. who had left the Foursquare formally and had started Calvary Chapel. Well, you know, when Chuck got exposed to all these kids living in their vans, living in the beach, you know, he went down with his wife. They'd never met a hippie, so he was wanting to figure out what's going on with these kids. I remember he asked his daughter to bring home a hippie so they could actually meet one, right? <laughs> like he's in a zoo or something. Right? <laughs> But he would sit down and look at all these kids sleeping on the beach, and you know he would just look at it and go, "This is just a mess. We got to clean this mess up." But his wife would be weeping and say, "We got to reach them. Mm. You know, we got to do something." Mm. So you know, kids start coming to Christ down the other end of L.A., down in Southern California. They set up a tent, start having water baptisms. Kids get baptized by the thousands. Then there were the renegade guys. And one of the renegades was the least guy you would ever think was a renegade, an older guy who saw God was working, and it was Pat Boone. For those people that don't know anything really about Pat Boone, because his heyday was long before my time, he was a monster celebrity. True. You could find Pat Boone shows on YouTube where there are thousands and thousands of screaming fans like the Beatles, where all they do is scream through the whole concert. Yeah. But here was a guy, he went to church on the way, Jack's church, and he was clean cut, you know, white patent leather shoes and Mr. Wholesome, you know. Yeah. Stayed married to the same woman living in the middle of Beverly Hills culture. But he recognized God was working and he said, bring the kids over to my place. We'll baptize them in the pool. So he'd be baptizing kids in a swimming pool of Beverly Hills, you know. <laughs> and there's some great stories of that time, but God was working in a really amazing way. We joked and said, you know, people were hungry. It was kind of like the way I look at that story. It's after World War II, you know. Men came back and sort of commanded their families, right? That this is what they learned. And they built the great society in the 50s. And it became about peace and prosperity and the white picket fences and a chicken in every pot and a, mm -hmm. a car in the garage and a TV or whatever, you know. And then the 60s kids came along and they said, you know, this is not where it is. We don't think this is where meaning is. So they began to fall out. And all of a sudden, this cultural divide happened at that point in history that was the greatest cultural divide I think we'll ever see. It's never happened since like this, where the culture of the 50s and the kids culture of the 60s both the music the values the drug use the hippies the authority was being undermined you know Kennedy was shot Martin Luther King was shot Bobby Kennedy was shot for the first time we have nukes we're going to blow ourselves up stuck in cover the reality was ever present in everybody's mind that we could all die at any moment yeah with nukes yeah it was so fresh 
And at the same time, so this hippie culture movement was a search for meaning. What does this all mean? You know, don't get me wrong, there was partying going on, but a lot of the drug use, and if you listen to the music of the 60s, there's a search in that music that had integrity to it. Mm. You know, you listen to Dylan, you listen to some of these guys, and you think, this had heart behind this search. This was real. Yeah. And so the music was sort of a cry for meaning. A lot of the drug use was also a cry. That whole transcendental meditation, open your heart using drugs to what is the meaning of the universe. So it was this sort of cry that the gospel fit into. Love, peace, joy that the gospel offered was the perfect fit at that time culturally. But yet the elders at the time, they didn't see it. They didn't understand it. They rejected it. Yeah, because, you know, people are only framed with how the glasses they have on. And so they had a view of what Christianity looked like, you know. I didn't have that view because I'd seen Christianity all, you know, internationally. Yeah. You know, I'd been to 45 countries before I was 19 years old, you know. <laughs> so, like, I knew that Christians didn't all look the same. But for a lot of people in America, Christianity looked a certain way. And these kids didn't fit the model. And so God began to work. And out of this music came. And uh, we were an early part of that. And when I met my wife, she had, they had a remarkable story. They were raised Catholics. She was eight of nine. Her brother, Matthew, was in the group, was nine of nine. And her sister, Annie, was 10 years older than her. And when she was uh, 12 and 14 years old, her parents died. Her mom died of a brain tumor. I was a school teacher. Her dad died two years later. Put him in the ground almost two years to the day of Mm -hmm. leukemia. Mm -hmm. So Matthew and Nellie and had other family members were now orphaned at home and had nowhere to live. So they sprinkled them into the houses of the family that were married. Mm -hmm. And her sister Annie was 24 years old and just married and had found Christ and was living in Hollywood. She had lived sort of a mess up till finding a mess of a life up till finding Jesus. And then it all came together for her. She was trying to be a star. She was trying to write music. She was supposed to be Peggy Lipton's role in Mod Squad. And she was shacked up with Jimmy Webb, MacArthur's Park, and up, up and away. Yeah. Meets her husband. He's an audio engineer, also lost, but his drug dealer leads him to the Lord. <laughs> and then he leads her to the Lord. And so they start following Jesus in Hollywood. And they live in this house, and they have what we had in Hong Kong. They feed people, share the words, sing, talk about Jesus, pray for people. People are coming to faith. And they started praying for Matthew and for Nellie, who were the two youngest, because they felt like they were the most impressionable. Mm. And so they didn't know that that would lead to them moving in because they needed a place to live. Yeah. So Matthew and Nellie come down. They were raised Catholics. That's kind of what they understand. Had gone to a Catholic school. Nellie probably would describe this much better than I, but you know, she said, really, for two years I was in a fog, losing my parents. I'm now living with a sister I never really liked. She's a 300-pound gorilla for a husband that I didn't really like. Mm. And, you know, my brother-in-law was recording all kinds of big-name artists, mm-hmm. Frank Zappa and other people. And, uh, but they had found Christ. And so all of a sudden, they're all new Christians. Nobody's a mature Christian. And they're stuck together and trying to, you know, it was not easy. Yeah. 
But what happened was, so they put Matthew and Nellie into a thing called Hollywood Professional School, and then later Nellie went to Hollywood High School. But during that time, Buck brought his wife Annie a piano, an upright piano, and she would clean the house, kids would be at school, and then all of a sudden the Lord began to give her songs, and she began to write these songs. The Easter song was probably in the first handful of songs she ever wrote, yeah. which has probably been recorded 500 times by different artists. But she'd come home and then she would say, look, you know, sit down and God gave me a song, you know, and they would sit down and they began to sing together. And they'd never really done that. They didn't know that they would have a sound, you know, and never sung in front of anybody. And, but it was kind of like the way God knitted their heart. You know, they sat there, sat around the camp. It's kind of a way they could grieve and, you know, get that out. And um, she kept getting songs. And so... There was a guy named Barry McGuire who came along, and Barry was had been with a group called New Christian Minstrels. They'd been touring with the Beatles. They were a big deal back in the day. Barry had come to faith. He'd been in the musical Hair, and he'd come to faith, and he had heard about a guy who was a Christian engineer, so he met Buck. There's no such thing back then as a Christian audio engineer or a Christian studio player or really a Christian player that was any good, period. You know, yeah. It just didn't exist. So Buck had a production meeting at the house. They lived in this big old house in Hollywood, near the Hollywood sign. And Matthew and Nellie had gone to bed, and he got him up and said, come down and sing for Barry. And Barry just began to weep, and he just said, I've never heard anything like this. And he said, would you guys come on the road with me? So it was Barry that took him out and taught them how to be themselves and not be anybody else, not have to perform, just sing. And, you know, when they sang, they took over the world. They were just beautiful. So Nellie and I met, and we doing the same thing, and we were young. You know, nobody was interested in getting married. I just wanted a girlfriend. Can we go to the movies with someone? Can I hang out with my friends? You know. So we dated for three years. So part of that time, I'm still in the group family. I'm going back and forth to Europe. She's touring. So we're kind of ships in the night. You know, when we were both be home, we'd you know hang out. And then you know, the life lesson is you can't date somebody forever. You got to figure out what am I going to do with this. And she was just. The most beautiful, she had these enormous eyes that were just gorgeous. And we got along so well, it was so easy and so comfortable. And also during that time, I stopped, uh, our group ended, family. And I started then taking on artists, I started managing artists and helping them set up touring. So I started working with Barry, Barry McGuire. And I was working with Mike and Kathy Dacey, a guy named Terry Talbot and a great artist named Janny Grine, who has now passed away. And when I was working with Terry, Terry said, uh, come on down to the studio, I've written this musical called Firewind. It was about the Book of Acts. And so I went down to the studio in Hollywood, and there was this moppy-head, curly-haired guy that had just come to faith named Keith Green. And he was playing a song on this project called Walk and Talk, about the guy that got healed, and, you know. And anyway, so he comes out, and he's all a bundle of energy. I mean, I'm 20 years old at this point, and I'm managing all these artists. And he's close to that. And I remember he just goes, oh, you have a group? So I still had a group at the very end of that. Yeah. And he goes, here's my phone number. And he wrote it on a piece of paper. I just found it in my Bible the other day, as a matter of fact. He says, just pay my gas, and I'll play. Like, if you need a piano player, I'll play on your music, you know. 
So he was a guy who was just a bundle of energy. So then I started working with Keith because he wanted to tour and he wanted to start doing stuff to express his faith. And this is before he ever had an album. So during this time, you know, Nellie and I are still dating and we get to a point where I'm trying to sort out, you know, what do I do with this relationship? I'm way too young still in my mind to get married. I'm thinking that that'll happen when I'm 30. <laughs> so, and I didn't really have too much to offer yeah. either. You know, I was pretty broke and, you know, it wasn't like I was a successful, I'd done a lot of cool stuff, yeah. but I didn't have anything to put on a resume and I didn't really have anything to offer a wife, you know? So I remember having a talk with Keith one day and we became really good friends and hung out all the time. And he goes, look, he goes, you guys are great for each other. You need to marry her. And he's like, you both have separate apartments. You can merge. He's a Jewish economist now, right? <laughs> you can merge your funds and it's, you can live much more efficiently and blah, 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 blah. So that got me really thinking. And I ended up with this most awkward proposal <laughs> that I'm going to tell so I don't get shamed later. And that is, I remember sitting down with Nellie and he goes, you know, I really do think we're going to get married one day. But it was kind of out there. Yeah. She's like, this is going to happen. Of course, she's great for just boiling it down. And she looks at me and she goes, are you proposing? I could just feel the chill come over me. I'm thinking, well, yeah, I guess. You yeah. know, it wasn't that clear. It wasn't like I went down on one knee and I, please marry me and let's go. You know, in my mind, it's like, I think this is going to lead somewhere, you know? Yeah. So once that became settled fact in our understanding together, and then we were married six months later. We had a six-month engagement. Now, keep in mind, we had been dating for three years. Yeah. We knew each other really well. And she's awesome. Nellie is very I mean, special. what a blessing. And basically, she said, I banked on your potential. So she saw something in me I, I didn't see, you know. I mean, I, I worked hard. I had synapses that fired. But at the same time, it's a young guy. You know, 20. Yeah, exactly. So during those next few years, I'm managing artists. And it's a great time. Keith becomes a dear friend. Uh, finally comes out with an album called For Him Who Has Ears to Hear, which is his very first release. And it becomes the largest selling premier Christian album of all time when it comes out. And he was a guy that was a great storyteller. He played the piano hard. He was a convincer. Mm. I remember when he went to the Blah Blah Cafe, which was a gay bar down on Ventura Boulevard. And the guy that owned the bar loved him because he would come in and argue politics, but he played great music and they, they loved him there. So after he came to faith, he went to the guy and said, well, you probably don't want me to play anymore because I'm a Christian now. The guy goes, we don't care. You know, we love you here. Come and play. So he would share his faith, you know. And back in those days as well, this, a lot of this was going on where these Christian artists were going into bars, going into clubs, and they had followings. Good music was good music, right? Yeah. And they shared their faith. People came to Christ in the middle of a bar, you know. Gay bar. A gay bar in some cases. So, you know, God was at work everywhere. And you just couldn't pigeonhole him and say he had to do it this way. Yeah. And that was such a beautiful thing. And eventually, record labels started forming. And it's really interesting to me. So the Jesus movement was mainly a, a spirit-filled movement. Those artists were all spirit-filled people. But the guys that put structure around it the record company guys were all Baptists who really didn't hold to that theological premise, but they did see that God was working in these kids. These kids were turning out. So they had an opportunity, and that was needed. Guys like Billy Ray Hearn, who was the first guy to start the very first contemporary Christian label called Murr Records. 
And Murr was down in Waco, Texas. It had just been a Southern Gospel label before that. Billy Ray was a choir director, started a second chapter of Acts, was on Murr. Only a handful of early artists were there. And then later he would leave and start another label that my brother-in-law named called Sparrow on the West Coast. And he said, would you come with me? And we had a couple album contract with Axe to finish up before they could move over. So Nellie and I, after we're married, I start managing Axe stuff. I start producing all the live shows out of my office. So I'm negotiating with unions. We're playing the biggest venues in the city we can find. We're not playing in churches. I'm negotiating the hall. I'm negotiating the unions. A lot of time the union guys were more expensive than the auditorium. Because you had one union group load you in, one union group to work the show, one union group to load you out, and then, you know, you pass a certain time, you went a double or triple time, you had to have a certified electricity, hook up your electricity for, you know, all your equipment. And so I negotiated all these deals, then I produced all the radio, then I would set up local teams who would be there, and then I did all the shows. So we were doing 110 shows a year for 16 years, and it was a great time. It was like we would play the biggest venues. And at one point early, the Lord spoke to us because we were really, you know, we were raised by Jack Hayford, right? So Jack was our pastor. And Jack was all about saying, you guys are the ministers of the gospel. I'm not the minister. I'm just your pastor. But God is empowering you to go wherever you work, in your workplace. A lot of, there was a lot of actors and Hollywood types. And they never got preferential treatment at the church on the way. They were just all in Bible school like everybody else. Yeah. And so his whole thing was, you guys need to be empowered to go do the work of the ministry. So when the church on the way for us was a wonderful backbone, because what they would do is they would put up, we would do these five-week tours. We'd drive to the East Coast and play for five weeks up and down the East Coast. Yeah. They'd put up every city, and he said, now I want everybody in this congregation to pick a city to pray for. And we knew we had hundreds of people every night praying for us as we were out doing what God had given us to do. It was a wonderful, powerful thing. And there were times where we started out doing ticket sales and then we felt like, you know, we need to open this up because people were bringing kids, were bringing their friends. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, three or four, sometimes a dozen of their friends and they couldn't afford to buy tickets for 20 of their friends, right? Yeah. And so what we said was, we'll stop doing ticket sales. We'll start doing offerings. If the offering doesn't come out to be enough then we'll take that as a sign that the body of Christ doesn't really want to support what we're doing and we'll go sell cars or you know we'll just go do other jobs. So that's what we did. We went out and we played these venues. We averaged, I think I figured it out one time, we averaged in the offering $1.80 a person. That was it. But God gave us thousands of people. Yeah. And so, you know, people were getting saved. God was working. It was an incredible time. And there was such... You know, people use this word anointing, but what I mean by that when I say it is, it's like you set up a vessel or a moment or a place where God is pleased to come. And it was like these guys would sing, and they were, first of all, unbelievably gifted singers. Complex, vocal ranges, stunning. But at the same time, they always understood their beginnings. They were born out of a tragedy of losing mm -hmm. their mom and dad. The music came out of nowhere. They were all, other than Annie, who was a little more outgoing, the other two were terminally shy. Last thing they wanted to do was walk out in front of people. And so they knew it was really God's work, and they were always conscious of that. 
people would want to put you in a place of honor, like you're a star, a celeb. They never accepted that. They didn't want to reject people. They learned to be polite. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, in their hearts, they knew we're no different than you. You know, God's given you a gift to be a plumber. God's called you to be this. We're all called of God just to do what he's given us. And, you know, we're just honored to be, you know, used of him. And so, I mean, there were nights that you know, it's hard to convey. But I remember, so toward the end of their music, they ended up doing a couple albums called On Hymns. Back then, there were no contemporary hymn albums. So the question was, how do we take these great hymns? Remember, they were raised Catholic, so they had some hymns in their background, and I had hymns in mine. It's like, how do we take these great, powerful, great theological musical statements, and how do we not hip them up musically, but convey the power of that? Yeah. So that was sort of what we tried to do, and they came out with these two albums. So later in the concert, to sort of demonstrate this whole posture, the concert would open in the dark with them singing Holy, Holy, Holy. So I remember being in the Seattle Arena, which we filled twice, there's six or 7,000 people. And just hearing people weeping, you know, just the Holy Spirit would just fall on people. And you just knew God was touching people. It was an amazing, amazing time. That ended for us in 1988. We felt the Lord wrap that up. Every year we had fasted for three days, just water, and asked God to give us insight as to what we're supposed to say. We knew what the music set would be. It would be the newest album and the backlog of mm -hmm. known, loved songs. But what was the message that we could then do all year? And every year we took what he had given us and had him in an open hand to say, are we done? Yeah. Or do you want us to keep going? So we weren't grabbing onto anything. And so we felt it was time to end it. And we had relocated, as had Keith, to East Texas. Which that's kind of a funny story. I was managing Keith. This is in L.A. One night, we get into a discussion. And he gets a hint that I have a different view of something theological. And he's one of those guys that couldn't just let it go. He just drills down, right? He won't let it go. And that wasn't a big deal for me. I generally didn't talk about these things unless it was the right environment with the right people. Yeah. But he wouldn't let it go. So this led to two in the morning now. He's calling his elders and getting them out of bed to come and set me straight, right? Because we got a disagreement over a theological premise. And I loved him, but he was, you know, he was just crazy like that. So I sent him on a tour, and I said, when you get to East Texas, I want you to meet a friend of mine named Winky Prattney. And Winky Prattney was the son of a Maori prince. He was a chemist. He was a brilliant communicator. I called him the ultimate communicator. And he was a spectacular thinker in Christendom. So I get a call from Winky's house. He's calling me from Winky's house. He goes, ah, I know that thing we were talking about. Well, you're right, but you should never bring up something unless you can fully explain it. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> so Winky then had such an impact on Keith that Keith decided I'm going to move my whole ministry from California to East Texas. And then we followed after that and ended up all in East Texas. For us, it was much more central. We had nine families on staff. People were having babies to get to both coasts, and we could do it in less days. And yeah. So Texas was a great place for, you know, it was rural Texas, right? Good people, great place to raise kids. L.A. wasn't quite so nice. Yeah. And, um, and at this point, you have both your sons. Got our sons. One was born in L.A., one was born in Texas. So, you know, that was a great place to base out of. And it became kind of an early version of Colorado Springs, where it was really pioneered by David Wilkerson's 
ministry. And then the Agape Force, which was a group out of California had moved there. They both had these 500-acre ranches. They both ran schools. Agape Force were recording the best children's music back then, Sir Oliver's song. I don't know if you remember some of those yeah. back in the day. Probably the best there was on the planet. And then all these other ministries came, you know. So there was bunches of them there eventually. Yeah. And as we were there, Keith was there and so on. So, and then, of course, Keith dies in a plane crash. And, you know, he's one of my best friends, you know. We used to go to gigs when I was single, and he would preach, he'd play. Almost everybody would get saved. And then we'd go play pinball all night. We'd go to, like, a bowling alley and play pinball all night, you know. Or look at our age, right? Yeah. We're just having fun. Yeah. And so people had this idea of Keith that he was this sort of strong, prophetic voice guy, which he had a part of that, but he was also this fun, wacky guy. And, you know, he was a young guy, right? So our last conversation together was, there's a whole backstory here, which I won't convey, but our last conversation together was we went for a walk because Axe was ready at David Wilkerson's request to go with he and Nikki Cruz to New York City, yeah. block off streets. We were going to play. Nikki and David were going to preach. And so we're getting ready to leave for that. So Keith and I walk down that runway together and have our last conversation. I'd introduced Keith to YWAM at that point, and he'd gone overseas one time. And their ministry probably was, they had 450,000 people on their mailing list. They mailed out a thing called the Last Day's Newsletter, which had discipleship articles and other things in it. They charged nothing. Never asked for money in the history of the ministry one time. When they came out with something like a book or a, an album, he had a 92% response rate. Unheard of, right? Wow. And so massive following. And, you know, he says they had a giant printing press. You don't print 500,000 20-page books. You know, they probably had about $15 million in revenue a year at that point. And Keith said, you know, I think Wayne and Martin, who were the two other leaders, can run this. I'm going to go overseas and do more international stuff. And that was his heart. And then we hugged and said goodbye. And then the following week, we got a message that plane had crashed and Keith was killed along with his children. Two of the children who our boys had grown up playing with. Mm. And uh, the family who had six kids were on board, mom and dad and the pilot. So, you know, obviously, uh, like all tragedies, it shatters everybody's world. People struggle with all kinds of theology in those moments, right? Yeah, yeah. How can God take somebody? I mean, we saw, one year we saw 52,000 people give their life to Christ. So how can God, you know, take somebody? You know, all these questions surface, right? About the wisdom of God and as people wrestle with all these things. So, you know, that was hard. Matthew, when we came back, was able to go out to the wreck and found Keith's wedding ring. I was able to give that back to Melody. Mm. And, uh, you know, Melody, what was left behind were two girls. So one was, now Melody was pregnant with one, and the other one was breastfeeding, little tiny girl. So really neither of those girls knew their dad. And, of course, we're close to them. Love mm. them dearly. They're both fantastic girls. Picked great husbands. But 
it's weird that their dad was one of my best friends and yet they didn't know him. You know yeah. They're adult women now with their children of their own, right? Yeah. yeah. But that's the journey of life sometimes. So So Acts ended and then it became what are we gonna do? What's next? I still had nothing to put on a resume. <laughs> you know? And um I had two boys at this point and a family to raise. And uh, I was always interested in film. Film for me brought together three things that were already in there. One was my dad was a photographer. Remember I said I had a well-documented life. We had a dark room in the house. So photography was the framing, the lighting aspect for me. I love photography as my brother is that too. And then uh, I was a musician, so music is a really important part of films. It moves you emotionally, you know, it's the the key. And I could write, and it was like, it wasn't always trained as a writer, but I could write stuff and it was pretty readable. I couldn't spell where the flip, my grammar, I needed people to clean me up. (laughs) But I could get stuff out that was pretty readable, right? So those things were the core that sort of, that helped me as I began to move into film. And I started out, we eventually moved to Colorado, and I thought, I'm going to start a little production company. I don't want to do bar mitzvahs and car commercials, so we're not going to have a listed phone number. We're going to have an unlisted phone number. And we're just going to start doing things we want to do. So that's what I did. I built my house, built a little studio in my house. And I thought, well, I'll just, you know, I'll just sort of I did one piece before I left East Texas for a pro-life ministry called Living Alternatives. Bev Klein, fantastic leader. And they had a wonderful, all-encompassing way, excuse me, that they serve girls. They had a home for unwed mothers that was absolutely beautiful. Mm -hmm. They had a crisis pregnancy. They had testing. They had adoption. They had all the aspects of it. And I did a film telling their story. And it literally, I'm cobbling together gear. I mean, it, back then, it's three-quarter inch, right? So I'm, yeah. And the cameras are massive. And so I'm sort of borrowing gear. And I have a friend that has a big church in Dallas. He was on staff with the video crew. He liked me. So he said, if you show up at midnight, here's where I'm going to hide the key. And you got to be out by 5 in the morning. And you can use our edit system. But don't let anyone know. So I'd go there and edit all night. Two hours away, I'd drive to Dallas to do that. Yeah. Anyway, I did this film, and we won some awards with it. And so that became my calling card when I came to Colorado. I said, look, I did this for them. I could do that for you. As with anybody who starts a new business, you go through these little simple beginnings, you know? Yeah. yeah. And so we ended up doing more and more of this. There's a saying that says, to be proficient in anything, you have to do 10,000 hours. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty good guide, you know? So I literally did... 10,000 hours. I've got a tape closet filled to show you. And I hired my first employee. When we came to town, we went to a church here in in Colorado Springs called Woodman Valley Chapel. We felt the Lord was sending us there. And we got invited out by this couple. And he was part of YWAM. And they had just moved this office with Paul Felitas, for those that heard that story, same time, from Holland to Colorado Springs. But he was in their media side. So... We're in his backyard. It's summer. We're eating barbecue chicken. And I say, how did you get into YWAM? Or how long have you been in YWAM? It's like seven years. I speak Dutch now. And you know, I've been living in Europe. Now we're here. I said, well, that's cool. And he's in media, so that's our common interest. And then I go, how would you get into this? 
And he said, uh, oh, because of you. What? I'm thinking, I just met this guy. I just showed up the first time in their backyard. Yeah. And he said, when I was wrestling with a decision whether I was going to go into YWAM or not, yeah. you were the guy I prayed with at the end of a second chapter of Axe concert about this. Wow. So it was because of you. So he became my first employee later. And he had kids and a family. And I remember as a young business guy going, oh my gosh, I got to make enough money so this guy's family doesn't ever starve. And, you know, yeah. like all that burden you have totally. when you hire people. And it's a good sober one to have, you know? So he became our, you know, we had a, and then we got a second employee. And then so we started growing. We became the most awarded company in Colorado, all with an unlisted phone number. So, you know, we won a ton of awards and we did all the stuff. And then I stumbled on a story of a guy who had found the location of Mount Sinai. And it was a really bad presentation. It was at Woodman Valley Chapel in a little Sunday school class. He had a real lame slideshow. And kind of people were nodding off because the telling wasn't really well. But I'm thinking, I'm pretty ADD, so it held my interest, you know. So I'm thinking, if this is true, this is really interesting. It just needs to be told better. So I ended up doing my first documentary, which is called The Search for the Real Mount Sinai with this guy. Bob Cornuke was his name. Yep. And he had found this mountain along with a guy named Larry Williams. Larry was the number one commodities trader in the world. He's the father of the actress Michelle Williams, who was married to Heath Ledger. Okay. Anyway, so Larry was not a believer, but he believed that the Bible was a historically accurate document. Bob was an FBI-trained investigator, and so was a believer, and they both went on this search. Into and, Saudi Arabia, which is a closed country. Well, that's right. So they ended up saying, you know, the ancient land of Midian, without going into this too far in depth, yeah. was always in Saudi Arabia. And so they ended up finding the Exodus route, the crossing site. They listed 14 things that should be there. If you look at a mountain, is that Mount Sinai? Is that Mount Sinai? How do you know, right? Mm -hmm. 14 things. So we know there was boundary markers around. So this one had piles of rocks all around these boundary markers. There was the, you know, the altar of the golden calf was still there. There was this giant 50-foot rock of Horeb where water came out. The top of the mountain was burned black. The Bible says God descended on the mountain with flames of a furnace. The whole silica in this granite was melted black. And on and on it went. There was a cave. You know, the Bible calls Mount Sinai Mount Horeb sometimes. And so we know Elijah went to a cave. Well, there's a mountain in the Sinai Peninsula called Mount Sinai that was named by a fortune teller. No evidence that it really is Mount Sinai. No cave, no evidence at all. So we document this find in a closed country that nobody can really verify yeah. because archaeologists still can't go there. But it's a very compelling film. And when that came out, it was like we had found a cure to cancer, but nobody paid attention. The Christian community paid no attention whatsoever. Not one person ever got excited about it. The secular community got involved right away. Vanity Fair did eight pages with pictures. Delta Airlines did a feature. Dateline NBC did two stories. Sony did it at Ripley's Believe It or Not. And it just went on and on and on. 1,100 UPI newspaper stories. Jerusalem Post. So eventually it did catch on, but it was a little slow. It was a weird feeling to have that happen. That why, why do you think, and by the way, for listeners that really want to hear that story unpacked even more... I encourage them, and I'll make sure to put a link in the show notes to the Exploration Films podcast, that episode where you and Bob talk about that film and kind of unpack that story more, because it's 
fascinating. And for people that want to watch that video, I'd recommend that they go to explorationfilms.com and purchase the DVD or go to Amazon Prime where they can stream it if you're an Amazon Prime member. That's where I first got to hear you because I was working at Focus at the time and I remember Bob coming in and you probably came in on some of those sessions as well where Bob was, you know, holed up in one of our studios and doing radio interviews, that kind of stuff. And I remember him giving me a DVD copy of that. And his brother, Larry, was my landlord at the time. And so it was like this really cool connection to this film. And I remember showing it to my roommates. They were blown away. Why did the church not jump on this and be like, oh, this is amazing? Well, I mean, first of all, you know, there's a lot of things that the church doesn't really fully grasp. Like, for instance... I would say, you know, half the people that I talk to that are Christians believe that Noah's Ark has been found, right? These are all things that happened a long time ago, and you hear about this over here. So they don't really know what to think, you know? I think once people saw the film, then it began to change minds, because it was pretty irrefutable. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, people are waiting to be told what to think. Unfortunately, that's the way it works, you know? And, you know, how do you verify all this? And all those questions that were coming up. Later archaeology today said it was the greatest discovery since the Dead Sea Scrolls. There were professors that study, you know, 200-year windows of certain parts of history that verified the find and secular guys. And there were critics as well. But it was a fantastic story that really, in my mind, proved the veracity of Scripture. Yeah. Because for the first time, you could actually see things that the Bible talked about that were supposed to have been there. They remain still. Yeah. And, you know, that led to a presentation to all the heads of Disney. Disney was doing the Prince of Egypt movie. Yeah. And they were curious to know kind of what was found. And, you know, it was a piece that ended up speaking to non-believers and believers. For believers, you know, it backed up what they always knew. For non-believers, like, oh my gosh, the Bible can be trusted. The Bible's true. The Bible's real on these things. So pretty cool, you know. And that's yeah. the cool thing, actually, about archaeology, that it's a relatively new thing. And as these archaeological sites have been found, not one of them has disproved the Bible. In fact, all these cities that they said never existed are all showing up, you know. <laughs> so it's pretty fantastic. It was heady times. I mean, we're, you know, we're a small tribe of video guys at the time in Monument, Colorado, and the world's at our door, and we're doing all these broadcasts and all these interviews and all this stuff. So that launched us pretty quickly from being a sort of guns-for-hire company to being able to do more of our own stuff. So I started doing more and more of our own films, and I ended up meeting a guy who was a professor who was going into sort of secular universities and talking about animal designs that challenged a lot of evolutionary theory. Because a lot of them were very, you know, they had a lot of moving parts that had to all work all at the same time, or they were complex systems like, you know, how do you live with a partial stomach or a partial lung and so on. So I ended up doing this film called Incredible Creatures That Defy Evolution. Kind of an in-your-face title for sure. <laughs> and I just did it kind of on the cheap because I thought this guy was so interesting and I thought, let's make a film out of this. So I did it. And what happened with that is, again, another explosion happened. Yeah. And all of a sudden, we're getting calls from these guys that were calling themselves homeschoolers. And I'm like, what's that? We have no <laughs> idea about homeschool anything. Yeah. They're like, our whole homeschool knows watching this and you know, our homeschool. So it ripped through that movement really quick. Because what happened was Christian parents 
were sending their kids off to secular high school and universities. And they were coming back with this quote-unquote science that they couldn't respond to. And they felt like here was something that was scientifically based that was helping explain the science in the light of God's creation as well. Yeah. You know, God created science, right? So that series, we did three of those. Again, an unplanned success. We sold 1.2 million DVDs out of our trunk, <laughs> if you can imagine. <laughs> At first, I started setting up a fulfillment center, and I thought, well, what I could do, I could take all these stay-at-home moms that are trying to raise their kids and not farming them out, and we could give them jobs where they could pack boxes at home. Yeah. Well, we did that for a while, and then that became overwhelming. So, you know, we finally had to get a fulfillment center and start being real shipping kind of people. And then it just kept going. And I have no explanation other than, again, God's blessing. It's like everything we touched turned to gold. I did a piece then on the Jesus movement, which was, of course, part of my story as well. Yeah where we took all the artists that were those Pipe Pipers I talked about yes. earlier, and we yeah. did a show called First Love, a historic gathering of Jesus music pioneers. And the whole premise was, First Love was, it wasn't about anybody's career. It was about what happened when you heard the gospel for the first time. What changes impacted your life that changed the course of your life forever? Yeah. That's the gospel, right? And so they would tell that part, which a lot of people had never heard, and it would just move people to tears. And then it was, you know, a wash with, I did a documentary that flowed throughout that gave a sense of the time, mm-hmm. you know, because every story comes out of a context. So you can get a feel like, where do these guys come out of? You know, the yeah. anti-war movement and the culture was going on. And then the music, you know. And that's three and a half hours of performance in history. And it just kept going. I mean, just God's blessing is the only way I can explain it. And, of course, we're going through all kinds of different gear at this point, right? So the early days, I started with sort of two-inch reel to reel, CMX editing, bunch of numbers on the screen. That leads to sort of three quarter, but it's all still tape based, you know, yeah. AB roll, three machines, two machines rolling, do a dissolve between those two to create yep. a, you know. And, you know, eventually then you go to sort of this little DV came along, DV yep. cam. Yep. And that was more compact. So we ended up shooting projects and I've been to 72 countries now, but we shot projects in over 40 countries. And so from a transportation standpoint, that was way easier. Yes. And it looked pretty good, you know? Not by today's standard, but yeah. by what had been. Yeah. And so we did that, and then, then it moved to things like uh, DigiBeta, Beta SP. Then there was another third format that we used called D9, but it was basically a digital way of capturing an analog signal. It was still not HD. It was still 640 by 480 aspect ratio, 4.3 aspect ratio. But, you know, it protected the stuff. Stuff didn't wear out on tape when it went to... It stored the X's and the O's on tape, but it was still a digital signal. So that was... Life was better that way with that stuff. And cameras, of course, changed. But it was interesting because the music world, which I'd been a part of, had moved to CD years before... You know, we used to always complain back, you know, because we had studios in our houses. And so it was like, you know, you would be bringing in the best players in L.A. We knew what this thing sounded like, and then people would be listening to it on a cassette. And you'd be going, what are we working so hard for, you know? But when CDs came along, it was much more of a true representation. Yeah. But in the film world, that didn't happen until way later. You know, the whole idea of DVDs came way later. Yeah. So in our business, we started out selling VHS tapes, and then we started selling DVDs, and now those are long gone in the digital world. 
So fortunately now things look a lot more as they were intended, you know, and the public can see the beauty that was really captured. And it's a visual medium, you know, it needs to be that way, you know. So that's been a lot of fun. And so, you know, we've just continued to do my journey. So one of the things I, again, I'm throwing back to my young life here. I learned to pay attention to the lessons. It's one of the things I learned as a young man. Yeah. So Cy and I walked in my front door, literally. That was my first project. Incredible Creatures walked into my front door. I met this guy, right? Yeah. I would never teach this, but every single project I did walked into my front door. And I remember the last one that I did, which I was up for a Grammy last year for, it was called Portraits of Colorado, The Making of a Modern American Symphony with Charles Dendler, which we did a podcast on that as well. Yes. I remember when that was done. I told Nellie that may be the last thing I ever produced because I'm going to honor this process. This is my process. I'm not going to say this is everybody's process. Yeah. This is my journey, you know. So that's how God's worked in me, and I'm just going to pay attention and honor that. And so that's what I've tried to do. And, you know, the blessings of my life, and I look back, and we've raised our boys here, and they love Colorado. And, yeah. of course, family's number one, you know, yeah. absolutely. But, I mean, for me, I look back, and I found a couple scriptures that really labeled what I did. Can I share them? Yeah, absolutely. All right, so there's two. So the first one was the whole dead man don't have rights. Yeah. So this is uh, Philippians 3.7. But whatsoever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in, his, in death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead, Philippians. So that beautifully describes what I went through as a young man. I didn't have a handle on that scripture back then, but I read it now. And now looking back, there's one more that speaks to my heart. Peter began to say to him, look, we've left everything and followed you. Truly I tell you, said Jesus, no one has left home Brothers, sisters, mother or father or children or friends, for my sake in the gospel, will fail to receive a hundredfold in the present age. Houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, mm. and fields, along with persecutions, in the age to come, eternal life. I'm so grateful. Steve Grison, you are one of my favorite people in this group, and I consider it an honor to be a friend, to be a compatriot on the Exploration Films podcast, to have you on the Holy Smokes podcast. My man, you are one special dude. And anyone that comes through Colorado Springs, if you haven't met this dude, I highly recommend it. It's Thank worth, you, Steve. It's worth it to take some time and get to know this dude. You're one of those guys that I've been given back in this life. Dear friend, I'm grateful for you, brother. All right, let's get to rapid fire questions. Hey everyone, before we get to Steve's rapid fire segment, I wanted to talk about today's sponsor, Blinkist. 
Are you like me where you start a book, then bright shiny object syndrome distracts you and you start a new book? Soon you have four or five books on your nightstand or unfinished on your Kindle? Well, last year, I subscribed to a book summary service called Blinkist. Blinkist divides the biggest thoughts and ideas of every book they summarize into short little blinks. That's what they call them. And you can finish most of those summaries in less than 15 minutes. The app is beautifully designed. You can listen to audio versions while on the go or while reading along on the app. A Holy Smoker buddy of mine and my executive coach, John Ramstead, told me a number of years ago to read at least 10 pages of a book in bed before going to sleep. Well, I've now translated that into a Blinkist summary every night. There are some that I'll reread over a few days to really get those key points into my conscious and subconscious. One that comes to mind is how to win friends and influence people. Try them for a seven-day free trial, and if you like the service and end up subscribing by using the affiliate link at holysmokes.club slash blink, or you can find that link in the show notes, you'll be helping to offset the costs associated with producing this show for you. Again, the link is in the show notes at holysmokes.club slash blink. This episode is also brought to you by you. We are a nonprofit, and you can go to paypal.me slash holysmokesclub. That's paypal.me slash Holy Smokes Club to make a year-end tax-deductible donation to help pay for audio production and web development costs associated with this endeavor. One more time, that's paypal.me slash Holy Smokes Club. And as always, those links are in our show notes. Now, back to Steve Grison's Rapid Fire Questions. Rapid Fire! Fire. Here. <laughs> Cigars or pipe? So, I'm a pipe guy. My wife bought me my first pipe about yeah. 18 years ago. Yeah. And I loved it because I could smoke in my office, and the next day you couldn't tell I ever smoked because pipe doesn't leave a residue like cigars. Yeah. I came to cigars much later, so there's two things for me. The pipe represents a way that I can pull back as a type A guy, pack it, mess with it, think. Yeah. And slow down. And when I'm writing script, it has to be pipe. But cigars, from, <laughs> it's true, there's a brain to finger yeah. connection there. Right? Yeah. But cigars for me represent community and fellowship. So generally, I would never smoke a cigar alone. Cigars are about hanging with other guys and have great conversation. And I love that. Yeah. So I probably smoke more cigars. I smoke a pipe still every day in my office. Yeah. And when I hire, when I interview, that's part of the interview process. I smoke a pipe every day. Is that going to bother you? Okay, thanks for coming. <laughs> <laughs> Favorite cigar? Well, I'm a Liga 9 guy. Love Ligas. I think they've gone downhill from when I first started smoking them. The company was bought. Yeah. Drew Estate was sold. But I think that's a great stick. I like the floors a lot. And this Safari I'm smoking is really good. It smells nice. It's a really good stick. Favorite pipe tobacco? Sorry, I'm not giving you straight answers to any of these questions. No, it's good. No, it's fine. So there's a pipe tobacco that my wife found that remained my favorite. And, you know, these pipe stores do their own blends, but they basically source the same tobaccos, and then they name them yeah. things that fit their shop. Oh, yeah. Sherlock's or whatever. Yeah. You know. There's an online thing called Pipes and Cigars. There's a catalog, and there's an online site. So I took the blend that I was smoking, and I mailed it to them. Yes. And I said, tell me what this is. Yeah. And they said, you are smoking the most popular pipe tobacco in America, lane number 14. And so you can buy bulk from them, and it's fantastic. 
So that's my favorite. First cigar experience. Oh, man, I don't know if I can remember that. You know, I smoke Swisher Sweets and stuff like that. Yeah. I don't remember, but I'll tell you, Kay had a big part of this. Yeah. So, you know, we met in this weird way, but when we finally met, nobody's going to hang around Kay very long without, you know, breaking out a cigar, right? Yeah. So I think Kay was my doorway drug. You know, Kay was the guy that, (laughs) (laughs) he he was the guy that, you know, sort of developed my appreciation. Because when you hung out with Kay and we became really close, yeah, then there's a lot of cigars burned, you know? Yeah. And it's a thing like a lot of things. You're tasting the ground of a place like you would with wine or coffee. So sort of to the uneducated or unappreciated at this point, a lot of times, people, oh, those are big, stinky cigars. But the thing about cigars is you will develop a palate with cigars over time, and you begin to tune in like you do with coffee to mm-hmm. nuance, right? So this is more peppery, and this is more earthy. You know, cigars have their own taste, and that just comes with time. And so, you know, Kay was a big part of that. Now, the story of you meeting Kay, we talked a little bit about that on Kay's story. I believe it's episode number three, Holy Smokes. But for people that haven't listened to that one, it's a very cool story. So we live in Colorado Springs, just north, in a little town called Monument. And there was no Costco here. And so the only one was in South Denver. So Nellie and I would make a trip up. You know, we had kids and a family, bulk up at Costco. So we were there one time, and I was filling up with gas. And Kay was filling up his car with gas. And we're both similar. We both love people, never met a stranger. So like, hey, what are you doing? And, you know, we start chatting it up, just random. Yeah. So we have a, you know, two-minute conversation. He hands me his card. I'm looking at his last name going, that's a weird last name. And then I come home and throw it away, you know, just another guy you met, right? So two years later, I have a doctor friend. It's Christmas. Nellie's got a girl's thing. And the doctor friend, he says, hey, come with me. We're going to a Christmas party. And we show up at this front door and ring the doorbell and Kay answers the door. And I'm like, dude, you're the guy I met at the gas station in Costco. And he goes, I remember. And so we became sort of fast friends after that, but it was completely a random event. That's awesome. That's so funny. Best dollar for dollar cigar. So, you know, cigars used to be the, you know, the thing that rich guys did. Yeah. Right? It was sort of a money sport. But, you know, there's some great seconds out there. So from a dollar-for-dollar standpoint, if you go buy some of the Oliva seconds on Cigar International or Cigar.com, you can pick them up for a buck and a half to three bucks and have a really good smoke just because it wasn't wrapped perfectly or whatever, and they won't put a label on it for that reason. But some of those seconds from a value standpoint are a great way to go. Where do you go to get your smokes? All over. So mostly Cigar.com, Cigar International, but I also... Go to Cigar Bid, which I think is owned by Thompson, maybe? I don't know. Yeah. They have these bid sites. Yes. And those can be cool if you know how to play that game, right? Mm-hmm. So sometimes on holidays, nobody's on, and you can score unbelievable deals. Or it depends on when the bid closes, and you can like put your bid in like 30 seconds before it closes. Yeah. You know? And I found some marvelous deals. I mean, I picked up a $250 box of cigars for 47 bucks. <laughs> yeah. They're not super common, but you can find great deals if you don't mind shopping a little bit. I keep a humidor pretty full, so I have buffer. I'm ready for the apocalypse. (laughs) (laughs) Favorite liquid pairing with your smoke? I'm a peaty scotch guy. So I love the peatier the better. 
Yeah. And I love Maduros, generally speaking. Yeah. So a stronger Maduro cigar to have a peaty scotch breaks it up so nicely, you know, sort of refreshes your palate. And again, you're sipping it. And then I, I came later to bourbons and there's some really, really good bourbons. Again, I'm not giving you a straight answer, but hey, there you go. No, it's I'm good. A, I'm a, basically, I'm a Lagavulin 16, number one, Peter yeah. Scotch. But then I love Lafroy and Ardberg and Ardbeg and other ones. So. Most memorable cigar or pipe experience? Well, so after my wife turned me on to pipes, I was shooting projects all over the world. So I would buy pipes because I consider them pieces of art as yeah. well. Yeah. And I would buy them in these exotic places in the world as a way to remember that time. It's a great so idea. So I own 70 pipes <laughs> by remarkable craftsmen. Yeah. And they, for me, are just a fun way to remember good times. So that's my best experience. Marvel or DC? Marvel when it comes to movies, DC when it comes to comics. I'm the same. Star Wars or Star Trek? Well, I grew up in the early days of Star Trek on television. You know, Captain Kirk and, you know, the early one. So that blew my mind, you know. So I don't think anything has had an impression on me like that since. And then yeah. I was the very first Star Wars. I saw it in Grumman's Chinese in Hollywood. And, you know, in that franchise, I, I don't really keep up with it anymore. Yeah. Like the stories migrated away. So but the early days were big impact. Favorite food? Oh, that's really tough. So where I grew up in Hong Kong, which is in the southern area of China, is the best Chinese food on the planet. As far as, and the Chinese will acknowledge this too. Really? Cantonese food is the mix of the way you spice and flavoring and everything. And Hong Kong in particular has become an amazing place for food. There's restaurants there that will hold 3,000 people. Oh my God. That's unbelievable. You know, so I see food in sort of two categories. I see sort of Asian food, but I love Indian food. I mean, you know, shot a lot in India, and in, as long as it's cooked well, I'm good, you know? And I'm, I could spend the rest of my life in Italy growing to 700 pounds because <laughs> Italian food is spectacular, you yeah. know? So I am a food guy. I like, I like a lot of food. Is there a place locally or in Denver that is like a go-to when you're hungry for Asian food that you're like, this is as close as it gets to what I grew up with? So American Chinese food is generally different, yes. you know. But there's two dim sum places in Denver that are pretty authentic and pretty good. And if we're up there, we can grab those a couple of times and it's really good. Dogs, cats, neither or both? I think cats are useful for things like sale cats and target practice, but I'm just that guy, you yeah. know, I'm a dog guy. So I grew up with dogs. So I lived on a missionary compound that was about 10 acres. Basically in Hong Kong, this is unusual to have actually a house. Nobody yeah. has a house. It's all high rises. Yeah. So 10 acres because it was a Bible school grounds and we had kenneled trained guard dogs that were released at 10 o'clock at night, German shepherds and patrolled all night. And then we had personal German Shepherds and other dogs as pets. My dad was a dog guy, and it gave me a love for dogs. And I've had some amazing, amazing dogs. So I'm a dog guy. Nickname in college or growing up? So I'm a connoisseur of ice cream, so they called me Grice Cream. <laughs> and I would eat it all over the world. Yeah. 
<laughs> my Danish roots coming back out, but you know, loved ice cream. You know, my last name took a lot of hits, Greaser, when I was, you know, junior high days, you know. Favorite book not titled The Holy Bible? Well, I'm not a book guy. Okay. I'm a film guy. Favorite films, then? Man, I haven't prepared for that one, but I loved a lot of Mel Gibson's stuff, Patriot, We Were Soldiers, spectacular film. I tend to gravitate toward great story. Mm-hmm. I'm less interested in special effects and technology. You know, I would have been maybe when I was younger, but now it's all about really great story. And I think there's really a lack of great stories when I look at films today. There's so much repeats and repurposing in Part 17 because Hollywood's just sort of banking on the money part of that. But one of the reasons I fell in love with documentaries was because growing up in Asia and seeing real life that was more interesting than any Hollywood script could ever write. I love the realness of a documentary that told a true story. Mm. Favorite kind of cheese? Ooh, yeah. My wife has a spectacular love for cheese, which really grew my love for cheese. Uh, We didn't have a lot of cheese growing up in Hong Kong, but um, we didn't have milk. We made all our milk from powdered milk back then. But uh, now I tend to like... uh, some of the harsher, stronger cheeses are really great. Yeah. All right. Last two questions. Yep. If you were to have a holy smoke with any three people in history, living or deceased, who would they be? Can't name Jesus. So in a twisted kind of way, I'd like to have a cigar and a conversation with Mao. Mao had a big impact on my life growing up. He was probably the most evil man that probably ever walked the planet. Mm. And I don't understand that, you know, because mm. I would love to get into his head mm. and figure out what drove him and where he was broken and try to understand him. Mm. So that wouldn't be a pleasant conversation, but it would be one that would interest me. You know, I killed 70 million people. Horrible wow. man. Never took a bath. Horrible guy. Other ones, I think C.S. Lewis for me. I know was, I've been to the Inklings bar where they gathered. Yeah. And uh, I called Lewis, C.S. Lewis's son, and he got us into his home, which wasn't open as a museum then. It was just a private home still. Yeah. So I sat at his desk, and you know, I thought about he and Wortley, and during the war, they, you know, they put those big wool blankets over the windows because the bombings of yes. London. Yeah. And those boys smoked like chimneys. I mean, they said the cake on the roof was unbelievable. So I think C.S. Lewis would be fascinating just because of his brilliance. When we're recording this, the day prior, I posted on the Holy Smokes page that it was C.S. Lewis's birthday. And uh, yeah, really He's quite a guy, you know. I mean, when I was in London, I, I had friends that were living in London. And he said, I got to take you to this bookstore, Collection Point. It was an old church where they yeah. collected books to ship to Africa for these book libraries in Africa. Well, I'm milling around. I found six first editions, C.S. Lewis books, which I have, yeah, including one that's never been released as a book in the U.S. called They Asked for a Paper. Fascinating. <laughs> What's that one about? I don't know. I don't read. <laughs> <laughs> All right, number three. Number three person. Number three person, I think, would be Charles Finney. Charles Finney was the greatest revivalist evangelist, I think, in the history of America. 
with an 80% retention rate for his converts at a time of no mass media. Yeah. And you read the stories of him walking in, filled with the Holy Spirit, into New York City, and people would fall to their face and begin repenting. They would come to his meetings and want to come to Christ. And he said, you're not ready. Go sit on the waiting bench over there. <laughs> and he would preach and said, till you have a full understanding of what you're committing to. Wow. He was a hard man in some ways. Yeah. His gospel was hard. Yeah. Because he had, he had to mean it, right? Yeah. But what he did was absolutely stunning and amazing. And he's a tough read, I think, for people. Yeah. But I think he'd be fascinated to talk to you. All right, last question. If we're to meet one year from today and I got a bottle of champagne, what are we celebrating? I hope we're celebrating the fact that there's been another move of God in culture. Like I got to experience the Jesus movement, which swept thousands of kids into the kingdom. I hope we're celebrating that there's another time and another place and a new thing that God's doing that's impacting all our kids and our grandkids. I think that'd be worth toasting. Steve Grison, thanks for being on the Holy Smokes podcast, buddy. My pleasure, bro. Love you.